You guys miss Kurt? <laughs> I really like him. I was just telling my wife how much I like him. He seems like such a loving man. I don't know him super well. Is he loving? <laughs> seems like it. Um, do I just click for my slides? All right. Oh, there we go. So that's our title today, uh, In Keeping with the Spirit. I just read uh, the Galatians passage. It's not this kind of spirit it's talking. It's about the fruit of the spirit. Uh, but I thought we'd talk about this. Um, we're doing, we've been doing a series in the book of Revelation at my church. And uh, I just preached this sermon last week. So it's kind of new. But the ideas are ancient. And I think it's really helpful for us to talk about it. Because we don't talk about it a lot, especially in covenant churches. Before I get to that, I want to tell you a little bit about my own personal journey by way of introduction. I'm here with my wife, Susie, back there. Two of our four girls are with us. The other two are at different things. And uh, we'll be celebrating 22 years this August in marriage. And we just celebrated uh, a 65th wedding anniversary at our church. So that just doesn't feel like any kind of accomplishment at all. Uh, I am at what used to be Mercer Island Covenant Church. Now it's Evergreen Covenant Church. And I was brought there um, to help turn the church around. It was an older uh, church that had self-identified as what the covenant calls critical moment or at risk right in the middle there. And so we've been at that for about seven years now. I've been there. Prior to that, I was serving as the director of church planning for our denomination. And prior to that, I was church planting. And uh, it's, it's really my first time being like a pastor. And so I was trying to learn how to do that. And I needed to learn some relational skills, how to talk to people. So I went to uh, coaching school, uh, executive coaching school for two years. And then while I was doing that, the conference uh, was contracting me to do some coaching work with our pastors and leadership teams around the conference. And I did that for a couple of years. And then... Um, and then the third year, they asked me to come on. And so I'm at my church about halftime and with the conference office about halftime. So that's sort of uh, my deal today. Uh, I want to talk about demons, vampires, and angels. Do a little survey here. How many of us believe in the existence and the activity of demons? Okay. Existence and the activity of angels. How many of us enjoy vampire movies? <laughs> so we're going to try, but the first thing I want to say about this topic is that I feel it's important to acknowledge that it's a little bit above our pay grade. And what I mean by that is two things. One is there isn't as much as we would like about demons in the scriptures. We have little things here and there, but we don't have all that we need to fully comprehend uh, who they are, what they are, how they operate. We're going to talk about some of that today. Uh, and so we just have to be careful. And the other thing is that human nature sort of gets thrown into the mix. And this topic has been used to hurt other people. It's been exploited and it's been abused. And so for these two reasons, I think we have to sort of come to it with a little bit of humility and a little bit of respect, recognize that uh, we're, we're sort of playing with fire here, okay? 
But there is something to be learned here. And so let's go ahead and try to do that. Demons, uh, we learn from Scripture, have one purpose. And that is destruction. There is no more why. You know, you sort of ask people, why do you want to do that? Why do you want to go there? And we have answers. You know, we call it the meaning of life or something. We have these deeper, uh, hopefully beautiful reasons why we want to do things. But if you ask a demon why they do what they do, all they have is one answer, destruction. And it kind of reminds me of The Dark Knight. Anybody seen the movie The Dark Knight? It's a Batman movie. Yeah? Uh, Batman was trying to figure out why the Joker is the Joker. Why does he do the things he do? Why? What's his reason? What's his end game? And then I think it was Wilfred or Alfred or his assistant uh, says, some people just want to see the world burn. And that's it. Just destruction. Why destruction? There's no answer. Just destruction. And that's uh, the end of demons. And if you think about this for a second, it makes sense because the opposite of destruction is creation. And God, at, its, at his core, in his relationship to us, he's our creator God. Whenever I have uh, thoughts about theology and I trace that thought to its origin, it always comes back to the th- create, uh, God being the creator. When God loves us, he is creating. When God provides for us, he is sustaining his creation. When God is working in our lives, he's restoring us to the original image of Christ in which we were created. Everything always goes back to God being the creator. To be God is to create. Everything is from him. Right? And so all we understand and experience as reality is God's created order. And so the opposite of that force, that way of being in the world, is to destroy it. All Satan wants to do is to see us destroyed. God's most precious and beloved creation. And that's it. That's his end game. And the way he gets there is by using three categories of things. Uh, I think there could be others, but it basically comes down to these three. Lies, accusations, and theft. And that's it. Nothing else. He's pretty predictable, pretty boring. He'll either lie, he'll accuse, and he'll steal. And he does that as a way to divide us. That's his penultimate goal. And through division, he destroys. Pause here for a second and think about our country right now. Pause here for a second and think about our denomination right now. Pause here for a second and think about the state of the family in our country. Anything that's ever destroyed was first divided. Anything that was ever divided was divided by lies, accusations, and theft. This is the work of the evil one. The way that you and I, the way you and I are made susceptible, vulnerable to accusations, 
lies, and theft, so that we might be divided, so that we might be destroyed, scriptures teach us, is through our pain. You and I, we all have pain points in our person and in our lives, in our stories. We have places that are still hurting. And whenever we are in pain, it makes us vulnerable to his lies. It's like we need some sort of any way to be some sort of salve to our wounds. We sort of reach for the lowest hanging fruit. My definition of sin is illegitimate ways of meeting legitimate needs. Any kind of need, if you trace it to its origin, it's a legitimate need. It starts out legitimate. Even if you are the weirdest person, at your, at, at, at your core, you're still a bundle of legitimate needs. And then we have choices to meet those needs legitimately or we can meet those needs illegitimately. And what makes us vulnerable to believing that these illegitimate ways are legitimate is our pain. It makes us desperate. It makes us vulnerable. It makes us mistrust. It makes us reach for the lowest hanging fruit. And so where there is pain... Lies are right here, and we can reach for it. You want to believe it's their fault, right? Because you're hurting. And so you believe that lie, and you start throwing other people under the bus. It's focusing on the other person's speck, because your plank is too painful to face. And so you believe lies, you start accusing or you feel accused. Your joy, your hope is robbed, your faith is robbed from you. And then you get divided from your fellow sisters and brothers. And then ultimately, you're destroyed. Now, pain uh, makes us vulnerable to the schemes of the evil one. But if you think about this, it's true in the world too. Uh, think about gangs. How do gangs recruit new members? I grew up in the streets of New York City. Lots of gang activity in the 80s when I was growing up there. And what made my friends and I vulnerable is our pain. They promised some sort of salve to the pain. And so I joined the gang. What about crime? Do you know this? Psychologically speaking, criminals believe that they have the right to the thing that they're stealing. Criminals feel justified in how they act. They feel the world owes them something. They feel they were wronged. In other words, there's pain. And then an illegitimate way of meeting this pain is to steal or to commit a crime. And so it's pain that makes us vulnerable to committing crime. What about addictions? You know what an addiction is? Addiction is you have pain in your life. And then you'd find some coping mechanism to escape that pain. And then you get dependent on the mechanism itself, which creates a second layer of pain, keeping you from ever addressing the original pain in the first place. Now you're stuck in a loop. That's what an addiction is. But it's, you're made vulnerable to the addiction by your pain. And then you think a little bit further, and you realize even love requires pain. What you experience as loving is somebody meeting you at your point of need. You feel some sort of pain. You feel loneliness, and somebody says, I see you. Somebody gives you attention. Somebody offers company. 
So you, you are made vulnerable to love from your point of pain. In fact, uh, even things like vocation, you know, what people do for a living. I think a lot of us, most of us, are trying to work out some stuff in the ways that we choose our jobs. I'm studying psychology. What made me interested in psychology in the first place? What made me study family systems theory for 25 years? It's because I was interested in the topic, and the reason I was interested in the topic is because I had some pain in my life that made me keen on those ways of viewing the world. What made me become a pastor? Why did I go to graduate school for four years? Why did I plan churches? Who was I trying to save? It's my pain around how the world works that made me interested in theology and God and spiritual things in the first place. And so I would argue not just the schemes of the evil one, but pain, the places where we are hurting, that's the point of connection to our world. We relate to the world through our pain. In fact, where we are hurting, that's where life and death sort of swirl together. And so God meets us where? In our brokenness. God is near to those who are broken and contrite in spirit. Even God is experienced by us through our pain points, through our places where we have need. And so Satan is not dumb for trying to meet us where we are hurting because that's our connection point to the world. There are evil forces at work in the world and is seeking to accuse, use lies to divide and destroy. Um, Speaking of the evil one and psychology, um, there's a book, one of the most uh, popular books to be ever written is a book called The Road Less Traveled by psychiatrist M. Scott Peck. Anybody know this book? Yeah, lots of us, right? Uh, What's interesting about this book is that he was a full-on Buddhist when he started writing this book, and then in the middle of the book, he converts to Christianity, and then he just leaves the rest of the book, uh, writes it as a Christian, and so he never goes back and changes it. And so the first half is Buddhist, second half is Christian. Uh, some of you may not have known that, but further down his journey as a Christian, uh, he began to experience his psychiatric practice differently. He began to view it through a Christian lens. And he believes that three times uh, during his practice, uh, during his sessions with patients, he encountered people who were demonized. And so he writes uh, detailed accounts of these three accounts in a book called um, Glimpses of the Devil. And so if you're interested in this topic and want sort of a more scientific, psychological perspective on demonization, that's an interesting book to read. Glimpses of the Devil by M. Scott Peck. So there are evil forces at work, and in verse 12, uh, we'll see that Satan never, ever, ever, ever wants to stop. He wants to perpetually destroy, and so he's angry because he knows his end is drawing near. The main takeaway from this talk is that I would like you to know who the enemy is so that you fight the enemy and not each other. Because as soon as you're fighting each other, you are now doing, doing demonic work. You're engaged in demonic activity 
when you are attacking each other because that's precisely, precisely the end goal of Satan, to cause you to believe that your fellow sisters and brothers are the enemy. No matter how awful you think somebody else is, no matter how much they may have personally hurt you or been an affront to you, they are not your enemy. They are somebody you are called to love, somebody you are called to heal, somebody you are called to be in harmony with. You got to figure out how to love and connect to people around you and not hate them, to not feel these negative things that you carry with you inside. Okay. So there's kind of three parts to this. Uh, The first section is called demonology. The second one is the struggle, and the third one is salvation. So I want us to just do some brief uh, exegesis here. We'll go through the verses. Um, This is Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. I'm going to read a few key verses for us. Verse 3 says, Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Remember, don't dive too deep into the specifics here. Uh, I was trying to do a little math because I'm Asian, and I was trying to imagine how do you put ten horns on seven heads? How would you do it? It just doesn't look right. I have a little bit of OCD in me, and it's just no good. No good. The main thing I want you to draw from this verse is there is such a thing as evil personified. Okay, I found this on the (laughs) Siri, so sensitive. I've been criticizing her lately, so now she's on her toes a little bit. (laughs) Evil isn't like electricity. It's not just a force, sort of in the atmosphere. Evil is an actual person. Evil is a conscious being. It's got a personality. In fact, the Bible would have us believe that it is the single most beautiful, most powerful creature that God has ever made. And that's part of how he became deluded and intoxicated by his own greatness. And it's got, he's got seven heads, apparently. Um, I want to tell you two stories. And I think I have probably five or six of these stories. But I want to tell you two of them just to share with you my experience uh, in this realm. I'm not qualified to explain it more than the story itself. And I don't know why these stories happened to me. I grew up Presbyterian. I'm a super analytical thinking type of person. Uh, But I have these experiences, and I don't know what to do with them. Maybe you know what to do with them. The first one is, I was planting my first covenant church in Boston. I planted a church out there called High Rock Covenant Church. And it was a really, really scary time. Uh, I was in my early 20s. I did not know what I was doing. I had gathered a core team. Every single core team member was older than me. I was the most naive. I was freshly married. I was two years married. And I was scared, really, really scared. And so I was aware that I needed help. I was aware that uh, 
I was undertaking a great task in some ways. And so I got into this gear where I would set the alarm at 5 o'clock in the morning. My routine was, I did this for about six months, where uh, I drove to Dunkin' Donuts. Do you guys have Dunkin' Donuts? We don't have Dunkin' Donuts out here, do we? We do? Okay, they're just everywhere out there. I would get an egg and cheese croissant, cup of coffee, and drive to uh, Singing Beach, park in the parking lot, listen to the waves, and pray for about an hour. And then, you know, and then I'd come home and do the morning routine. So it was this spiritually sort of uh, alive place for me. During one of these days, I was awakened in the middle of the night. I heard or felt or saw a voice or something like that. It just was like all my senses were tuned into uh, this voice. And this voice said to me, Peter, wake up and pray. So I, I bolted up, and I tried to wake up Susie. She didn't wake up. She was dead asleep. Um, and then I saw in front of me, in the darkness, but darker still, was this creature in front of me. And darker still were its eyes. And you know how in dreams, like, you, nobody explains anything to you, but you just know what's happening? It was just like that, where I knew what this creature was about. No shadow of a doubt, no questioning, just total consciousness, just awareness that this creature hated me with all of its being. It just was filled with hatred. I can see it in its eyes, and it was staring at me, and it was, felt like it was coming closer to me, but it wasn't, and it was just there, glaring at me, filled with raging hatred, and I, I remember feeling scared, but then I heard that or felt that voice again that said, Peter, pray. And so I remembered, uh, I had this flashback to Frank Peretti novels. Does anybody here remember Frank Peretti? <laughs> this Present Darkness and Piercing the Darkness. Remember those two books? Man, they were amazing, right? And then I remembered how uh, the Bible says that Michael, the arch, archangel, was fighting with Satan for the body of Moses. And instead of fighting Satan himself directly, he used the name of Jesus. And he said, the Lord rebuke you. Right? And so I, that's what I ended up praying. I said, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. And I started just repeating this phrase over and over again. And then the creature went away. And then I woke up Susie and we talked about it for a little while. And then we were able to go back to sleep. No idea why that happened. That's all I understand about that story. Second story is a little, a little bit uh, more detailed I was invited to speak at a conference, multi-day conference, and uh, the first day, the first, before the first session, uh, some of the leaders or organizers of that conference came to me and said, there's this woman, uh, we were hoping she wouldn't come, but she's here, and every time we have any kind of worship service, she starts manifesting this sort of like demonic thing, and uh, she speaks in a different voice, we think she's like demonized. Uh, could you help us? Because we're afraid she's going to sabotage our week. And so I don't know what I'm doing. And, uh, you know, my mom told me a pastor has to always to uh, be ready to do three things, preach, pray, and move. And so um, the last one was a joke. <laughs> Kurt's coming back. <laughs> and so I said, let's pray. And so they brought her, and there was a, a couple of them, and a, me and her, and we closed our eyes. 
And I don't know why this happened, but I suddenly started seeing images of like stuff that I wasn't expecting to see. And then I just started asking her about it. We we're all in sort of prayer mode, eyes closed. And I said, you know, I'm seeing this picture. What is this? And then she would say, oh, that's when. And then she, it was like images from her childhood. And then uh, there was like traumatic things that had happened, you know. And so she would sort of start telling this story. And I would start seeing pictures. And it was kind of this mixture of her witness and my imagination. And we would sort of deep dive into her traumatic instances. And around every point of pain that we were able to put our finger on, there was some sort of lie that she believed about God or about herself. And then what I did was I helped her to identify those lies as lies. We named them as lies. And then we would dispel them in the name of Jesus and then replace those lies with biblical truth. And then we'd move on to the next pain point. And we did this for probably like a dozen different uh, pain points in our life. And, and then we just said, amen. And then we opened our eyes, and she was totally and completely normal. And she never manifested during that whole week. I'm not sure what happened there. You can, you know... Uh, have your own hypothesis. I really have come to believe that demons are real. I have uh, other stories like this, and sometimes nothing else explains it. Okay, so that's verse three. Uh, evil is not just electricity, but it is a person. Uh, second, verse 4a, its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them. Uh, what we understand is that there are three generals uh, among the angels. Satan, Michael, and Gabriel, right? And Satan commanded a third of the angels, Michael a third, and Gabriel a third. And then Satan uh, rebelled against God, and a third of the angels that were his, uh, you know, under his command, uh, fell with uh, Satan. And later on in verse uh, 11 or 12 or something, it says the angels fell, right? And so we see that there are, and for those of you who are numbers people, there are two angels for every demon. So if Satan takes a third, there's still two thirds left. So you do the math, okay? One third times two is two thirds. Asian, right here. <laughs> in fact, to cement the stereotype even further, my dad was a math professor. So there you go. Can't escape these things. Um, so just be comforted. That's all we get from verse 4a. And then there's verse 4b. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. Just imagine this scenario. Just how wicked and evil, pure evil this scene is. This woman, when I shouldn't speak like this for women, but I'm going to do it. There is no more vulnerable moment than a woman is giving birth. And there, Satan is there, ready to devour her child. Think about how wicked and evil and exploitative and opportunistic and schemy and planned that act is. You know, it's like we have 
All of our human instincts tell us to protect and guard and sanctify that moment, right? And then Satan is doing the exact opposite. This is the creation moment. And Satan is there to devour. Just so evil. And that's his MO. That's what he does. He wants to destroy forever. And then verse uh, 2. This is really the center of, I think, uh, what what we need to understand. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Satan was there because she was in pain. Pain is what makes us vulnerable. Pain is the demonic entrance into our hearts and minds and makes us susceptible to his schemes. So pay attention to where you are hurting. Where are you hurting? That's where you're vulnerable. That's where there is probably just opportunity for you to believe lies about yourself and about God, about how the world works. That's the battleground for you, is where you are hurting. Areas where you're not hurting, you're fine. You know, uh, people are successful in different ways, but the way that when we use our successes to become arrogant or, you know, give ourselves a big head, that's because the opposite is actually true. We're sort of weak and vulnerable, hurting in in that very area. So we're using whatever is within our reach, including our successes, to try to feel better. That's where Satan is, trying to puff us up. You know, where there's broken relationships, where there is some sort of disconnect with somebody. Some ways that you judge other people. Those are all places where you are hurting. That's what the Jesus taught. You know why you have insight about that person and you're so obsessed with their spec? It's because you know on some level that's where you have a plank. Where are you hurting? You got to figure this out. You got to identify your pain points because that's where you're vulnerable. And then verse 9 and verse 10 leads the whole world astray, the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night, day and night, day and night. Satan never stops. Never, ever, 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 ever stops. Forever and a day, this is what Satan wants to do. Okay. And then the struggle, and this, this you really uh, need to, I think, get straight here. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, really helpful passage, quoted a lot, right? For we do not struggle, for we do not struggle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly. And look at the word that I highlighted for us, places. Now, this word places isn't in, in the actual language. If you did a kind of uh, comparative parallel translation study, you'll see that all the translations use different words for this word. It's because it's a different word in the scriptures. It's not talking about a physical place. It's talking about a realm, an arena. It's where the battle takes place. And I, I want to emphasize this because we read this uh, verse 
on a cursory level, and we think the battle is sort of out there somewhere, up in, up in some above place. But it's not. If pain, if, if the place where we are hurting is where Satan knows we are most vulnerable, where is the arena? It's inside of us. The battleground is in us. Satan is battling not for your stuff, but for your mind, but for your heart, your spirit, your soul. He wants you to believe lies. He wants you to experience agony and defeat and hatred and suspicion. He wants you to judge other people. He wants you, he wants you to have motives that are so twisted so unnamed that you don't even know. Scriptures teach us the heart above all else is what? Deceitful. Your character. The habits of the heart. This is the place where Satan is. God is after our spirit. So is Satan. God is after our heart. So is Satan. God is after our mind, so is Satan. We know on a, you know, uh, just a human level, physical level, we feel the emotion, that emotion creates a thought, and then we act. So by the time we actually do something, we've had a thought. And by the time we think something, we've had a feeling. Now, where does that feeling come from? It comes from the battleground comes from this place where we are struggling. Your motives matter, your intent, your agendas, your lesser gods and idols. And this is really an inconvenient truth because we don't want to believe that it's really just inside of each person. I don't want to have to own my stuff. I want to feel like the battle's over there somewhere. When you're praying against some sort of attack or the enemy, do this instead. Put it on your heart. So don't pray for our country like this. Pray for our country like this. Lord, help me to know how to not to see my fellow citizens as enemies. You think... You think about our government, you think it's some big thing happening out there. No, it's just little, little kids with broken hearts, wielding swords they ought not to be wielding. You think the places where you work, your bosses, your managers, these people are, have, they, what is power? Power is just little people with hurting hearts, wielding swords, not realizing they're hurting other people. You know, my kids, kids look up at parents and they think the parents are something and parents, we know we're nothing. We're just little kids still trying to work stuff out. The battle is inside of us. That's where the struggle is. <clears throat> There's this show that um, was first started as a movie called uh, What We Do in the Shadows. And then there's a show made by the same creators. And uh, it's a show that's created around the motif of vampires. And it's so interesting to me because they have vampires that, you know, suck blood. 
And then they have what's called energy vampires. And energy vampires are people that are really, really boring. They keep talking to you about answering questions you're not asking, giving you all these details about like how toilet paper is made. And you know, that's one actual example from the show. And then the, their audience starts really getting bored and tired. And then their eyes start lighting up because they're drawing off your energy. And then they have these uh, emotional vampires. Emotional vampires are people who talk to you about all their woes in life. Every time they talk to you, they've had an awful day and something else is going wrong and they're just drawing on your sympathies. They have three different kinds of vampires. It's, it's not really about vampires. It's just cultural commentary. That's why the show is so brilliant. But it's interesting to me that we always have these villainous creatures in culture. It's because whether you believe in demons or not, whether you believe in the spiritual realm or not, you know evil exists. But the struggle is not out there. It's not like that. It's in here. Okay, last slide. This is how salvation works as I understand it. Verse 5 says, She gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Verse 11, they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. What, what is salvation? How is God going to save the world? Is God going to tear down governments and tear down authorities and, and save the planet? What's he going to do? What does salvation look like? If Jesus says, I'm going to come save the world today, but you tell me how to do it, what would you say? Hmm? Remember that movie, Bruce Almighty? Jim Carrey replied all, yes, to every prayer, and the world was getting destroyed. How would you save the world? God sends you an email. How should I save the world? What do you reply? Salvation is Christ being formed inside of us. There is a way that you are going to conceive Christ in you. And the work of God in your life is nurturing this Christ in you. The hope of glory. Christ in us, hope of glory. Salvation isn't this crazy battle as you imagine it may be, but it really is a battle for you, your soul, your heart, your spirit, that over time and through difficulty and through the working out of your pain points, God is going to form Christ in you. And this process of Christ being formed and you giving birth to a new creation, you are going to be the new creation. You are going to be made new You are going to be redeemed. Your life narrative is going to have an arc towards redemption. Your very specific story, you personally saying, God, I understand now. I understand you love me. I understand that I am your beloved. I have nothing to fear. That's Christ being formed in you. And you, through the shedding of your own blood, that's what Hebrews teaches us that we are going to have to shed our own blood. That's why verse 11 makes sense. 
How, do you, how else do you understand verse 11? They triumphed over him, that Satan. By what? By the blood of the lamb. And by what? The word of your testimony. It's like the blood of the lamb is activated by your own blood. You have a testimony. Your testimony mixed with the blood of the lamb is going to defeat the evil one. That's what's going to save you and the world. When you confront and contend with your own pain by the blood of Christ, the angel armies will meet you there. Dial down how much you focus on other people. Dial down how much you demonize other people. Do you know how you know you're engaged in demonic activity? When you demonize other people. Whenever you understand them to be the enemy. Every time you have a they. And you don't know how to love your enemies. The way scripture commands us to. You are engaging in demonic activity. Know the enemy so that you can fight the enemy. The enemy is not sitting next to you. The enemy doesn't belong to the other political party. The enemy doesn't have different habits than you or think differently than you. They are not the enemy. They are people you are called to love because they are people that the Lamb has shed his blood for. And by the word of your testimony mingled with the blood of Christ, we shall be saved. So I want to give you a verse here, and I'm going to read this verse for our benediction later on too. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Will you bow your heads with me? God, I, um, I believe you will save our external world as you save our internal souls, each and every person. So, God, that's what I pray for. I pray that you will somehow meet us in our pain, each person. Show us that you are God the healer, God the provider. You are God, the God who sees us. And I pray that you would win us over to you. that the blood of the Lamb might be made effective in our personal lives. And then and only then will the external world be changed and saved. All of creation is groaning, longing, waiting for the redemption of your children. So God, that's what I pray for. The spiritual battle you are calling us to fight, help us to fight that. We look to you for strength, for wisdom, for hope. In Jesus' name.